This place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. It's raining. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash a check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Happy Monday morning for you listeners out there. Sunday night for me and QB. And welcome to Hate Week as the Ducks will take on the Huskies this Saturday up in Seattle. Josh Pate's going to be there. Game Day's going to be there. Everyone's going to be there. QB, I'm going to be there. I don't think you're going to make it though, right? No, I won't be at this one, but I'll be in Eugene for the Wazoo game the following weekend. Yeah, yeah, that'll be another big one, too. Washington State, as we'll get to later, uh, dropped their first game of the year this past weekend at UCLA. But they're a dangerous team, and they're playing high, and they're obviously going to look to be on the comeback road this coming week as well. Uh, so before we get into things, QB, we got a good episode today. we got some listener questions. We're going to go through our week six picks around the, the conference in the country. Oregon got a new commitment a couple hours ago. Elijah Rushing decommitted from Arizona a couple hours ago. We can talk about all those things. But first, and most importantly, stop making whatever noise you're making. But but beyond that. I'm not um, hearing anything right now. Can you hear it still? Really? I'm I'm well, I'm hearing this like I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's just network noise or something then. I have a I fan know. on. Is that do you think it's like causing interference it, with my mic? It could it could be. It could that's be. Right. Usually here. Yeah. It's um, like inter, it's like it's like intermittent but regular. So if it's like a Yeah, that's the fan. That. Okay, hold on. Give me two seconds. Keep going while I turn that off. Okay. Well while QB turns off his fan and hopefully doesn't yell at any um any other drivers in his house at the moment, then I will just say it was a great weekend of football. It's always funny when you're on the when your team's on the bye week, like it's good and bad. Like I kind of there's I feel like there's a hole and there's something missing in my Saturday. But it's also, you know, great when there's a great Saturday of football like we had this week. There were so many entertaining games around the country from the um Red River shootout first thing in the morning at nine o'clock and then all the way up till USC, Arizona, triple overtime late in the wee hours of the morning. So it was a lot of fun and and kind of stress-free when you're not having to watch your team, you know, struggle through one of those exciting uh, finishes. QB, you back? Yeah, I'm back. Okay, so before we jump into the meat of our episode, I have I have to ask, this is a quiz. This is a quiz. Okay. It's pass-fail. It's a pass-fail type of thing. One question quiz. If there is less than 40 seconds remaining in the game, and it's third down, and you have the ball, and the other team has no timeouts, you take what is the only acceptable play call? You take a knee. You take a knee. And if you had been a head coach in college football for 
oh, like 10 years and an assistant coach for at least another 10 or 15. Wouldn't you expect to know that? Uh, yeah, unless your name is Mario Cristobal because you don't learn from your mistakes. Although, yeah, I will I mean, say, I, I, out of, like, uh, trying to be intellectually honest, like, the comparisons to the 2018 Stanford game aren't really all that fair. No, they're not. They're because not. while was was Oregon was not going to be able, like, that game specifically, because I'll go back to it again, and I know people are going to disagree with me because they hate Mario, and that's fine. People disagreed with me at the time. But if we were unable to run the clock to zero by taking a knee in that situation, and so I don't mind going for the first down because of that. Yeah, because otherwise Oregon, and I defended it at the time, and I still do to some degree, because it, in its hindsight, right, um, Oregon would have had to punt the ball in that scenario if they had not, if they had taken a knee. And and I don't know about you, I, how many times have you seen a team take a knee and then punt? Like, I mean, nobody really does that. No. So it's easy to say in hindsight you should have taken a knee, but at the time, I don't really... I mean, I think maybe you call a different play. Maybe you, you know, call a timeout and you make sure you tell Verdell, like, absolutely no matter what, two hands all the time on the ball. Don't try to get extra yardage. Just go down. Like, whatever you have to do. But but the play call of going for the first down when it was, you know, I think two yards to go was was defensible given the, the fact that you could not take a knee and run out the clock. That was not possible. And punts are weird. Stuff happens on punts. Well, I, just, I think back to, I mean, this is an NFL example, but when Deshaun Jackson was with the Eagles, um, I think it was the Giants that punted to him on the last play of the game and he returned it for a touchdown to win. So, like, it, punts, punts are not uh, comfortable plays. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll give, I won't give Mario too much harsh uh, for what he did in 2018, but, but yesterday was indefensible. I mean, like literally, you take a knee, you throw the ball to the ref, and you're hugging and high fiving and shaking the other team's hands. Like there's no, there's no other thing to happen in the game. Like there's, that's it. Tyler Van Dyke goes down to the ground, and everyone runs onto the field, and the game's over. Yeah, one. The only thing I've heard, and again, it does not make it like more defensible because again, it's right in line with horrible game management that's plagued Mario throughout his career. Um, and and Sanford is not. Like Stanford 2018 is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of like horrible game management. I mean, how many times have we gone, did we go into the fourth quarter or like close to half with like one or zero timeouts left? Um, just oh, because yeah. of, oh, like, I love op- the like timeout right after the opening kick special, you know, operational incompetence. Right. And so, um, but apparently that, that running back had 99 yards and he had just come back from a pretty gruesome injury. And so they were trying to get him over 100, which is like so still stupid in my opinion, like 99 versus 100 yards, but whatever. Um, they they well, paid the price for it. It's... They lost. And it's, that is not the last time they're losing this season. So, No. I think even more damning than, than what you just said is uh, one of the national – I think it might have been Dan Wetzel pulled up uh, play-by-play from the end of all of Miami's game this year. And in every single game this year, that once did they take a knee. They literally ran handoffs at the end of the game to, to run the game out every single. So this is just what they do. And, and granted, those games weren't close, right? I mean, they were they were ahead by 20, you know, 30, 40 points. But the point remains, apparently they just didn't install the victory formation, I guess. And and they ran running plays to get more yardage in every four games this season. 
yeah, that's um, <laughs> it's it's so Mario, and it's just it's funny. It, it, there's there's nothing really to say about it other than the fact that it's not surprising because that's who he is and who he's been throughout his career, um, and I don't think it's ever going to change. No, I mean, it, the pattern of like poor like in-game coaching decisions is is so long that it, if it was going to change, it would have already changed. Uh, I think when you know when Miami was hired them and all their fans are on Twitter bragging and you know and coming at us and everything. I mean, I, I mean, we you and I we sat in spaces with some of them. We we chat, we traded tweets with some of them, and we all we all said like, look. Great recruiter, like you know. Obviously, we didn't know what we were going to get with Dan, so we were sorry to see him go. And at the time, like most most Oregon fans felt that way, or were worried about you know being able to recruit and all that. But we also told those Miami fans, like, look, this guy's good for one to two losses a year that you shouldn't have. Like, he will get you an extra loss or two every single year just by either coaching games way too close that you have that shouldn't be close, or by things like this. And and that's what we saw last night. Yeah, it, it it's just what you get, right? Like it, he's too type A and too high strung to give up control, and he's not particularly talented at that aspect of the game. And when you mix those two things together, um, you end up with a situation where you are not equipped to like to adjust or to take care of the problem. So again, yeah, I, I don't I, I don't yeah. expect it to change. I don't expect it to get better. I mean, maybe he'll learn from this one because of it's how like much of a national embarrassment it's been for him. But the fact that that's what it takes is insane to me. Yeah, and obviously he's getting just bashed on and deservedly so by everybody across the country all this week. I thought I thought Bud Elliott's take on it was was on. He's basically saying like this is this is Mario. This is like we all knew this. You get the great recruiting and you get the poor game calling and that's and you just have to accept that that's what he is and that's what you're going to get with him yeah and Um, you know what like for where miami was it's an upgrade right like they're going to be a better program but you can basically take the bottom six games on your schedule every year throw a dart at the board and one of them is going to result in a loss that you probably shouldn't have yeah all right enough about mario and miami um they'll figure their stuff out or or they won't going forward uh Oregon got a commit today. You want to touch on him real fast? Yeah. Uh, Sion Lolela, wait, Laulea, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, have to forgive me, but he, uh, big 6'4 Juco corner. He's a three to play two. I don't expect that he's going to redshirt, so anticipate that you'll have him for one or two more years. Um, but really long, talented kid. Uh, six foot, they list him at 6'4. He's probably closer to 6'3. He's basically the same dimension as Kyrie Jackson. From a size standpoint, um, really impressive mover for his size. Like when you think of like what you typically get athletically with a kid that's six four at the corner position, they're usually stiff. Um, usually, like they can only play zone coverage and kind of play space, and then use their length to get into windows. And for him, it's the exact opposite. He's a true bump and run uh, man. Press corner can change directions. Can really run in a straight line. Like track kid. Like verified ten seven hundred meter guy. Um, not like insane elite fast like Roger Pleasant or even some of the other guys on the roster that ran in the 10 fours and, and below. Um, but like for a 6'4, 190 pound corner, can really, really run. But the more impressive thing to me is just how he can change directions laterally for a guy his size. Uh, that's not standard. Um, 
and it, it's a it's a really unique skill set. I think that with Kyrie Jackson very likely going pro after this year, it's kind of a plug and play for him to. to I think he's going to play a lot of snaps for us next year. So really, really excited about the uh, the pickup, and I think it's going to be something that that bears immediate fruits in twenty twenty four. Yeah, and that cornerback room just, I mean, it, ridiculous amount of talent in that room, right? Even with Jackson leaving, if you got, you got him coming in, and then you've obviously got Manning, Florence, Nico Reed, who are all playing this year. You've got uh, David Austin and Robert Pleasant, and then you got all the 24s, you know, the other two 24 kids coming in, uh, Iffy and, um, and Dakota Fields. So it's like an embarrassment of riches at that position, which is, which is just great from a development standpoint, right. And plug and play and you, you just like roll guys out, roll new guys in. Yeah. I mean, it, you don't want to look too far ahead, but it's very likely Kyrie Jackson goes pro after this year. I would say it's very, very likely that Jaleel Florence will go pro after next year. Um, and so just making sure that the coffers are, are, are stacked and that you've got tons of great reserve cornerback talent. I mean, you can absolutely never have too many guys that can cover. And so, um, I think the staff would have been very content just having, um, just just having uh, Dakota Fields and Ifi Obedegwu in in the class. But when you can stack an embarrassment of riches and add another premium player at, at such a high value position, I, I don't think there's any way to go wrong. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, we'll touch on more. Obviously, we mentioned earlier Eliza rushing decommitted from Arizona. Oregon got several crystal balls. Uh, for his services that'll play out over the next few weeks and months up till signing day and about two months from now. But um, I think that's one Justin and others. And, and I think you over the last couple of weeks have been saying like that, that recruitment's not over. That's a guy that we're going to get back in on and certainly looks to be heading in that direction. So uh, we, we can talk recruiting more down the road, but uh, things are heating up again as we get into the home stretch there. Any more in recruiting you got? No, I know. I think between that, between rushing Aiden Breland, Jericho Johnson, um, Roger Saleapaga, uh, who else is left on the board? Jeremiah McClellan. Like, there's obviously well, the two big flip guy candidates were uh, rushing and McClellan. Well, rushing's now out of the Arizona class. McClellan um, still committed to Ohio State, but we'll see if that sticks. If Oregon can close with some of these big time guys, I mean specifically in the front, when you look at the front class that already existed for Oregon, but if you can add guys like Breland, Johnson, and rushing to what you already have, that's an elite group to pair with last year. And we start looking at what this front seven is going to look like over the next two, three, four years. And it is just insane. Like most top end talent that we've ever had. Um, and really it's going to be the foundation for a team that can be competitive and win at a high level in the big 10. Yeah, I was talking, you know, we had Big Ten Ted on last week and we were talking with him about it and I was actually on his show last week again talking about the schedule release and, you know, one of the things he's asked me a couple times is, you know, how do the Washington, Oregon, USC and UCLA, how are they equipped to to compete coming into the Big Ten and, and that, the trenches is the thing we I always talk about, right, like especially on the defensive line, um, you know, out of the four schools coming in from the West, like nobody has stacked offensive line and defensive line talent even at, at a level close to what Oregon has. I mean, or, I mean, and quite frankly, the, the defensive line talent that Oregon's stacking is better than most of the teams in the Big Ten, right? I mean, you know, obviously outside of maybe the couple, the big two, big three, like, they're going to be they're going to be ready, and I'm not saying that they're going to go into the Big Ten and it's all going to be a cakewalk. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying physically from a talent perspective on the lines, they are going to be um, the most equipped to to transition in there as smoothly as possible. 
Yeah, I agree. It, Oregon, with the way they're recruiting on the defensive line, if they can pull off this coup, right? Like you got to got to close. You got to sign rushing. You got to sign Breland and Johnson. But to go with Sims and Gray and and Jones, and then you pair that with what they signed last year with the Amari Washingtons, Terrence Green, Mateo Uyunglele, Blake Purchase, like that group. You pair those two groups together, and all of a sudden you have like a group that might be like the strongest in the new Big Ten. Not just the strongest of the West Coast schools in the new Big Ten, but potentially that the strongest unit overall. So, um, really, really impressive group. A group that I think sets the table for Oregon. Just got to keep recruiting the offensive line at a high level to match. Um, and you're going to be in a position with the way that Oregon recruits at the skill positions in the back seven, which is, I think, naturally easier for West Coast programs to recruit. Um, and I don't think that Oregon's going to have to, like, submit themselves to being just a lesser program no no not at all all right let's move on uh let's get to our picks for this week um i know you were oh, you i were, was uh, i was absolutely horrible <laughs> let's hear it let's tell us tell us about it tell us where you were on saturday qb oh i i did a uh well we did a challenge called the 12-hour walk challenge my my a colleague of mine and myself where basically you don't have your phone you don't have access to any type of internet or like you don't listen to anything and you just walk out your front door and you walk for 12 hours and see how far you get. And then either you end up back at your house, you try to time it so you get back to your house or you uh, call an Uber to pick you up and bring you home. So I, I was struggling through a 28 mile walk on Saturday all day instead of watching college football. Now I, I spent some time catching up with box scores and watching some condensed highlights and stuff, but um, this will be the the least amount of football I watched this weekend. And after seeing how my picks turned out, I'm glad that I didn't watch any of it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to that. You know, I did think it was odd all day Saturday that I, I hadn't heard from you and you weren't chiming in on various, you know, group chats and things that we're on together about the games that were going on. But now, but I found out later when you got back and were complaining about your feet, I, I don't see why you hadn't been, uh, been checked in but, uh, it was a good day of football qb uh, you know outside of your picks and my picks which weren't much better but uh it was actually a very entertaining game and there was good football to watch in every single window which is usually not the case so the best part is, is i i sat out on betting this weekend because of it too and so i didn't no, that's actually good. place any bets so i'm still like massively up on the season but had i been home and betting yesterday i would have lost my ass it would have been really, well. If your really bets bad. were anything like your picks in our uh, in our challenge, yes, because you went two and eight this week, QB. Yeah, no, this two is, and eight. This is this is like this is where I have to like have a real moment with myself and realize that I just don't know what I'm talking about. So, um... <laughs> well, and I went four and Brutal. six, so uh, you know a little bit better. And what the hell, Justin? who watches less football than both of us, like far less football than both of us, went seven and three this week. I have a buddy who's made like 12. I'm not even, I'm not even exaggerating. He's made like 12 grand betting on baseball and he's never been a sports guy ever this year. I, I, I do think there's something to like, just not overthinking it and just make it big. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on with Justin. Yeah. I mean, he's just pulling the, I, I like, mean, no, Justin definitely, I'm like, Justin knows his stuff for sure. I, I, oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not either. I definitely don't want it to seem like I'm saying he doesn't know know anything, but freaking insane how great his picks have been these last couple of weeks. 
Yeah, yeah. He was four, three out of four in the Pac-12, and uh, he hit on four out of six in the other games, and then we all pushed on the Maryland-Ohio State game. But, uh, yeah, so let's jump into it. First of all, Red River shootout, Oklahoma, Texas. Um, Texas was a six-and-a-half-point favorite. You and I both rode with them. Thought, you know, I thought they were going to beat Oklahoma by a couple of possessions, maybe 14, 10, 14 points, something like that. Um, but I do think Texas is the better team. But, you know, they didn't capitalize on a couple of opportunities. They had too many turnovers. Oklahoma, I think, is for real, obviously. They've jumped up now ahead of Oregon and Washington in the AP poll after this win. And they did what they needed to do. I think these two teams are going to play again. So we'll see. We'll see them again down the road in the Big 12 championship game. But but Oklahoma, they look good. Yeah, they do. I I think that um, I might have been a little too low on Oklahoma because they hadn't played like a dominant team against teams like Cincinnati or SMU. Like they looked fine, but they weren't like they weren't uh, offensively as explosive as I would have anticipated they'd be um, against kind of the lesser competition on the schedule. So I think I kind of used a transit transitive property in a way and assumed that they would lose by more than six and a half. But watching that game, they like Oklahoma's got playmakers. I mean, like watching Peyton Bowen run around and make plays um, was was tough um, to say the least. But there, there's also just a lot of experience and quality on that Oklahoma offense. I think Dylan Gabriel. I I know that uh, some people I respect have been saying that Jackson Arnold's definitely the better option for them, and while that might be the case long term over the course of the year, I thought that Dylan Gabriel played an exceptional game on Saturday for. Uh, for Oklahoma and, and and he's the reason they won. I mean, the, especially those that last drive, the touchdown pass that sealed the game. Like that pocket was completely collapsing around oh, him. Yeah, yeah, it was almost yeah. That was an incredible throw, like under under immense pressure. Yeah. So with that in mind, like I I, I think that both. I mean, very clearly, if like you would have asked me coming into the season, those were the two best teams in the Big Twelve. I think that there's probably even a wider margin than I probably would have assumed at that time. Um, and so like, that's like, again, more power, more power to those two schools, but it also is kind of an indictment for the future of the big 12, um, because the two best programs in the bullet are gone. Uh, and there's really not a lot of like sustainable talent beyond that. No, the, the big 12 is really, I mean, the, the current big 12, uh, teams outside of those two, none of them are looking good this year. Then you, you talk about the four that are joining and, it's man, it's not going to be pretty. I mean, it's going to be entertaining in the fact that they're all going to beat each other, but there is no top end teams that are going to, I mean, maybe Dion goes out and, and nails the portal and they're ready to go next year. Maybe Utah bounces back from their injury season and rising, you know, red shirts this year and plays next year. I, I don't know, but man, Arizona could win that league, dude. Like it's not a good league right now outside of those two who are leaving. No, and I think in Utah, I think Utah will be like as long as Kyle Whittingham is at Utah, they'll be a competitive team. And I think that they've done a good job of elevating their recruiting profile in recent years to a place where they they very well could be the most dominant team in that league. Um, but I think you're right. I think Dion, I think he'll be able to do things in the transfer portal. He'll have access to players that the rest of the schools won't. Yeah, it's not a good league. Oklahoma just their their schedule too is like absurd now because they have. UCF, Kansas, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, BYU, TCU. Like Kansas is the only ranked team in that list. They're at twenty three right now. Um, they Did you see at all ease... of that Kansas UCF game? 
I did not see any of that, no. So I, I watched the highlights of that. Kansas just ran the ball right through them. like like It was like a hot knife through butter. There was nothing that UCF could do. Yeah, UCF's not very good. UCF's run defense is just terrible. They just like I Kansas is very well schemed and very well coached. I actually really like their running backs, but it was also like there was like no resistance at all. Yeah, uh, Kansas threw the ball twelve times. <laughs> they ran for four hundred yards. Uh, they're not going to be able to do that against Oklahoma, though. Uh, I just like Oklahoma's schedule looks like they're just going to cakewalk to twelve and zero at this point and the rematch with Texas. I, I don't really see any resistance there. And Texas doesn't play a single ranked team the rest of the year either. It's no, I, I think I don't that, I don't see any way this isn't a rematch. I think the stage is set for a really compelling rematch, and I actually really can't wait to watch that game because those two teams will keep getting better as the year goes on. I think that if you play that game eight times or ten times, I think that Texas probably wins like six or seven of them. Um so it'll be really interesting to see if uh if Oklahoma can pull it off twice in the same year. Yeah, that's always tough to do. All right, next one, uh, Maryland, Ohio State. So Ohio State was a 20-point favorite. This is a game we pushed on at home. Um, it was kind of like Ohio. It's 10-10 at the half. Ohio State has really not dominated this year, particularly offensively, and, and it was kind of another one of those games, and they they definitely woke up in the second half, particularly in the fourth quarter. It was still They were still only up three going into the fourth quarter, and then they, uh, they outscored them 17 to zip to make it look like a blowout. But it really wasn't. Um, 37-17. Yeah, I am unsure about this Ohio State offense with, with Kyle McCord. I think it, it, they, they need to like become a lot more consistent because the run game isn't good because the offensive line's not good. And so if you don't have consistent quarterback play and you don't have a dependable run game because the offensive line's taking a pretty massive step back, I think that they're kind of poised to be the third finishing team in the East. They ran the ball 33 times for 62 yards against yeah. Maryland. And like when you adjust I, for sacks, not, it's I, like... That's unacceptable. It, yeah. Yeah, it, sure. Yeah. But when you adjust 29 for, sacks, for 82. Like, sack. Yeah. That's still horrible. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think Maryland's trotting out like, you know, gangrene out there. Like... No, Maryland. If you can't run for more than eighty, yeah, but but eighty yards. I mean, you can't run for more than eighty yards against Maryland, a team that you're significantly more talented than. Like that's a problem. Oh, I don't disagree with you. I'm I'm just saying that like they like Maryland is a decent football team. They're like I like Maryland. I would probably favor Maryland against the entire middle of the Pac-12. Like again, sure, but we're talking about Ohio State, UCLA. No, I get it. I get it. Well, 105,000 people uh, packed Ohio Stadium to watch that, and uh, they got a win. Uh, Kyle McCord did throw for 320 yards and two touchdowns. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. I'm with you. I right now, I would, I would, I think Michigan is pulling away from the Big Ten because I, I'm not as impressed by Penn State as you are so far. Well, and we'll see. Me, we'll see. This talk about Penn State versus Ohio State. It's more of a matchup thing. Like styles yeah. make fights, whereas I think Michigan's just going to stamp a hole right through the middle of Ohio State for the third year in a row. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. The Penn State Ohio State game's coming up in two weeks, so we'll we're going to see that play out pretty soon. But um, yeah, this Ohio State team, it's 
it's one of the worst teams they've had in quite some time. And it's and it's still a really good team. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, they're because they have so much freaking talent. But there's some serious like I mean, this isn't a team you can look at and say you feel good about winning the championship. Oh no, winning no. two playoff games. But I mean, you got to think like if if the worst that it gets for Ohio State is a ten and two regular season and a New Year's Six bowl, like this was this year they had to expect to, to take a step back this year, right? Like you lose C.J. Stroud um, to a massive like he played fantastic, and then he's he's playing really well for the for the Texans right now in the NFL, um, and then you lose both your starting tackles. They're both starting for NFL teams right now. Um, like it, it was going to be a process to replace those those pieces. No matter how well you recruit, there comes a point where you're losing such a high quality of player that that it it's still difficult to replace. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. We'll uh, we'll watch that play out over the next few weeks. That Penn State game's coming up, as I said, quite quickly. All right, let's move on. Battle of the Tigers, LSU on the road takes care of business down at Missouri. Um, what's the score in this one, Kiwi? I know LSU covered. They won 49-39, so pretty high-scoring affair. LSU continues to be really good offensively and really quite bad defensively. Yeah, Missouri's got some good players on the outside, Luther Burden. And I, and I when I made my pick, I was basically counting on LSU's poor pass defense against what I think is a pretty fun Missouri passing game, but... Um, Ultimately, LSU in the second half found a way to get some stops that Missouri didn't, um, and they pulled away and were able to cover. So tough L for me, but I, I think that if you played this game again, I would still probably take the same side that I bet. Yeah, Luther Burden is going to win the Blitnikoff if he keeps on his current pace. He has 800 yards through uh, six games. Yeah, I mean, he really is like kind of their whole offense, but he's so good that that's fine really- for them. Yeah, he's kind of the best player in the country that very few people are talking about. But I think it, it's starting. It's, people are starting to talk about him. Fifty-four catches, seven hundred ninety-three yards, five touchdowns through six games. So he's on pace for a hundred catches and fifteen hundred yards. Oh, sixteen hundred yards. Uh, it's, that's pretty insane. Yeah, he's there's really some good. good. There's some really good receivers on the other side of this game too. Malik Neighbors uh, and Tom Thompson for uh, for LSU are total studs. Yeah, this was definitely – I mean, LSU is just a – I guess just watch LSU games if you like offense because there's going to be 100 points in every game they play. I well, think, they have or to. 80 points. <laughs> yeah. And Jaden Daniels is a tough son of a gun because he's just getting cracked and he just keeps coming back for more. Yeah, he had a really nice game. He threw for 259 and three touchdowns and then ran for another 130 and a touchdown. So he kind of seems to be rounding back into the form that he had toward the stretch, toward the home stretch last year. and. Um, you know, LSU is a team that obviously they have two losses, so they're probably not a, a playoff contender. Or they, they aren't a playoff contender anymore, but they're a team that can play spoiler for sure in the SEC. Yeah, I think that it's it's becoming clear that it's going to be a Kirby Saban Bowl again. Yep. That's, I, I'm, I'm interested to watch that. I, I do think Georgia's the better team, but they're not the same Georgia of the last couple of years. I think Alabama continues to get better and better. Their defense is is really good um, offensively. They're limited, as we know. But also, I think Alabama is going to be more tested when they get to that game because Georgia's schedule is just so so poor. So it'll be interesting to see that play out. I can't wait. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think the the big thing is that Carson Beck is playing a lot better, I think, than most people are giving him credit for. Um, and people don't realize how banged up Georgia has been. And I think as Georgia gets more healthy and that quarterback continues to settle in and get more and more comfortable as the starter, that Georgia can like, – I think by the time that the playoffs roll around or an SEC championship game comes, that Georgia is going to be firing on all cylinders and, and, and – truly like a, a juggernaut of a team to beat so yeah and we did have alabama and georgia both in our picks uh georgia played their best game of the year by far i think they went uh, beat up on t- number 20 kentucky 51 to 13 they were a 14 half point favorite you and i got the win there uh one of justin's rare losses this week um but yeah that was that was a dominant performance i never bought kentucky as a as a top team and, and i think they were pretty well exposed by by Georgia in in a way that we're very familiar with. It's just not a good matchup for them, right? Like it's it's not a it's not a matchup that you would expect Kentucky to win. Like Kentucky prides itself on being a physical football team that wins on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball and they can do that against a lot of teams especially in the middle tier of the SEC, but when you start talking about teams like like Georgia who have just a completely different caliber of athlete, it's it's not the same thing. Yeah. Totally agree. Alabama went on the road as a two-point favorite to Kyle Field to take on the Texas A&M Aggies. And uh, this was a, a pretty good game in the first half. It was uh, Texas A&M actually led by a touchdown at halftime, but Alabama dominated the second half, uh, outscoring A&M 16-3 to win 26-20 to overall. Uh, Texas A&M has a really good rushing defense and a really poor passing defense. And J- Jalen Milrow was they, – they made him throw, and he, he was able to do it, 321 yards, three touchdowns against the, the Texas A&M uh, defense. Uh, conversely, Alabama ran for 23 yards total in the game. This was the battle of, like, extremely talented defensive fronts. Like, Dallas Turner um, is playing at just an insane level on the edge for, for Alabama. Shamar Turner, uh, for not related, for A&M, is playing at a really high level. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's legitimately probably eight, like, top three-round picks on, on combined between these two defensive lines. Like, conservatively eight. Like, there might be more than that. Um, and so it's going to be tough to run the ball against these teams, and you're going to have to figure it out through the air. I, I think that Jimbo Fisher just continues to prove that he's just a really below-average coach. Um, I, I think this is the year they're going to finally fire him. The, the the buyout is whittling down year over year. I think as long as he continues to recruit well, they're going to let him just recruit. And then before that class, I guess like they kind of have to do it this year before that class leaves. I think that, yeah. I think they're going to pull the trigger at, at the end of the year. I think they're going to have – I mean, we'll see what they do. Obviously, if they go on a run, I mean, just like the say complete, job, like, but... The cowardly like clock management, just constantly punting, punting and plus territory. Yeah, yeah, like you, you're just not playing to win. And it, like a, a lot of these coaches, whether it's Mario, whether it's Jimbo, are just proving to be completely like completely inflexible um, in terms of adapting to the direction the game has gone from a from a game management standpoint. Like they would have fit right in in the '80s and '90s, but football's different now than it was then. Yeah, I just in a game where points are a premium and you're in plus territory and you got a fourth and two, and your defense is playing really well. Like, what are you doing? Like, I mean, what you're gaining twenty yards of field position? I mean, you need to like you have an opportunity to convert and score points. Like, it's like I don't understand that mentality. I just don't. 
I've never gotten it. I think he's auditioning to be the next head coach at Iowa. <laughs> oh man. Um yeah, AM's got Tennessee up next at Tennessee. You know, then they got South Carolina, Ole Miss, and they end the year at LSU. So I mean, it it looks like they're heading toward their eight and four year. I mean, are they paying Jimbo all this money to go eight and four every year? I don't uh, think so. I don't think that's the intent, but that is what they're getting. <laughs> yeah, that is what they're getting. Oil's up, so you never know. All right. Um, next up is Notre Dame, Louisville. I got the win here. You and Hop both took Notre Dame. I was big on on the uh, the Cardinals, and they were big on uh, all going all over Notre Dame. I mean, they kicked their asses up and down the field. It wasn't just like a fluke. They they dominated this game. Yeah. Speaking of like kind of underrated like things that are going on in college football, like Louisville is sneakily pretty good. And they also yeah. don't play UNC, Clemson, or Florida State, so they yeah. they have a they have an end of season matchup with with uh, Miami, which is kind of the, like the last game that they. I mean, they could they could obviously drop one. Every team's capable of losing to someone they shouldn't, but kind of the last game that they should lose. Yeah, um, we said or, this or, at the beginning should, of the year. Should in be our... not a favorite in, and it won't. It might not even matter. Like they might have already locked up a spot in the ACC championship game by the time that game is played. Yeah, we talked about this in our preview show that they that they schedule set up and they're and you talked about how much work they did in the transfer portal in the offseason and and you nailed that and and they're six and zero. Oh, they go at Pitt. They host Duke at Virginia Tech. At or sorry, host sorry. At Pitt, then three, three straight home games, Duke, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Then they then like you said, they go to at Miami and they end the year with Kentucky, but that is non con that's a non con game. So I, yeah, I mean they could be they could be ten and zero heading to that game, and it's really not hard to see that as likely. Yeah, and, and that game could literally not matter in terms of their ability to go to the ACC championship game. I think Jeff Brown's right. a really good coach, though, because you look at what he's done at Purdue over the years, and then what Purdue is this year without him, and then you look at what he's doing at Louisville relative to what Louisville has been recently. Um, and I, it's really, I don't think it's possible to debate that he's an elite coach. Yeah, it's gonna. This is gonna be a team that I think it's gonna be really interesting and hard to see how. I mean, who cares about how the AP ranks them, but how the committee ranks them as we come down the stretch? Because they're gonna. I mean, they're gonna be undefeated, but man, this ACC is so bad. Especially their schedule, right? Missing all the good teams. Like their ranking is gonna be real interesting when it when we get to the CFP ranking shows. I don't. Th I think they're good. I just. I don't. Like, are they, you know, number 10 good, number five good, you know, number 15 good? I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, I think that they're going to be a team because of lack of resume that struggles in the rankings. But they, I mean, I think that they're obviously pretty solid. Like, not, yeah, again, definitely. the transitive property is BS. And, like, you got to think about where this game was played. But, like, they, they beat Notre Dame a lot more solidly than Ohio State did. Notre Dame was three for 13 on third downs. And they held them under 300 yards. Um, Louisville yeah, always has that, athletes too. Like you think of like yeah. where they're located in relation to good talent. Like there's a lot of really good athletes in the Carolinas and Florida that that they have access to. Notre Dame only got 44 yards rushing in this game. I, I look, and I I don't think Notre Dame's a great football team either. By the way, um, I certainly don't think they're they're you know. 
a top football. I, I think they're very offensively limited. I think their defense is good. I think their their offense is pretty mediocre. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Um, I think that it's pretty clear that they uh, they fumbled the offensive coordinator higher. Yeah, definitely. And and Hartman had a rough game, <laughs> three interceptions. I think he had another fumble as well. So rough outing for the Irish. Um, their playoff hopes are also dead as, as they fall to five and two on the year. All right, let's move on. Uh, G5 game, Wyoming. I called it. So did Hop. Uh, Wyoming took it to Fresno, not only winning or winning uh, against the spread, but winning the game outright. Um, and they are probably the going to be the top ranked, or are, I didn't see the rankings today, the top ranked uh, group of five team and might have the inside track on that Fiesta Bowl spot. Well, what about what about Air Force? Isn't Air Force in there? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be those two. It's a battle of those two in the, in the Mountain West. You're right. I love what Air Force does offensively. Like they're obviously an option team, but they run it in like a way more dynamic manner than the other academies do. Um, and like I just think they're really fun to watch. I, I've always had a soft spot for Air Force. Plus, their uniforms rock. Like they have yeah. some of the coolest so, all alternate uniforms in college football. Oh, look at this! Guess who plays this week? I know Wyoming Air Force and Air Wyoming. Force. That, like that's a game I actually am like really looking forward to watch be, watching because Craig Bowles is a really good coach and that defense is always really well put together. I mean, you, you know who Jake Dickert was a defensive coordinator for before he went to uh, Washington State, right? I don't. He was at Wyoming with Craig Bowl. There you go. Yeah, so, uh, uh, Wyoming is five and one. Their only loss being at Texas at, uh, at Texas, thirty-one to ten. But they actually had Texas. They played Texas pretty tough the first half of the game, uh, and that's their only loss on the year. They obviously beat Texas Tech to open the season. Uh, knocked off Fresno State this past week. Air Air Force, uh, in the meantime, is five and zero on the year. San Jose State, San Diego State, Utah State, all all wins there. And I agree with you. I they're it's I love watching some of those old school like option teams. You know, it's like the Army Navy game every year or something like this. But you're right, the Air Force I don't watch them often, but every once in a while I'll catch a little bit of Air Force and it is a it is they're a fun team to watch. It's a little bit different, right? Like they, they run out of more spread formation. So when they do decide to throw the ball, it's not quite as like hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean they have thrown uh, for four hundred and ten yards on the season. Yeah, which I would assume is more than the other two academies combined. <laughs> I, I don't know. I haven't looked it up. Their quarterback has nineteen passing attempts in five games. That's pretty like that's pretty good return on your investment, though, when you consider what they're getting for that. Yeah, they're averaging twenty-two yards per attempt. I'm saying, go deep. That's it for the national games. Let's move over to the Pac-12. Washington State, UCLA, I mentioned that one. Bruins' defense continues to just dominate their opponents. Um, Washington State had been a very high-scoring um, team, putting up a lot of passing yards, and, and UCLA just shut them down. Um, that's a, a team, another team like Louisville that has a really clear path to, to backdooring their way into, the, into Vegas as the top what's perceived to be the top teams in the Pac-12 kind of might pick each other off and leave an opening. I think the for UCLA, the game this coming week at Corvallis is probably make or break. If they lose that one, because they already have that one loss to, to uh, 
that one loss to Utah. So if UCLA drops at Oregon State, it, their path is probably eliminated or on severe life support. But if they beat Oregon State, they could go on a roll and, and that U, U, UCLA-USC game later in the year could really decide. Um, I'm curious what the line is. I'm, I'm trying to pull up the line for that game. Because I think Oregon State's a field goal favorite, or give or take, right now. Maybe a little more, maybe a five-point favorite, which I kind of surprised by because I don't know. Anyway, UCLA, Washington State, any thoughts on that game? Um, I didn't Did watch any highlights? of it. No, I, I didn't get to see anything off this game, so I don't have anything to add. It seems it looks like, um, based on a message that Hithlade had sent me during the day, that Cam Ward was back to being 2022 Cam Ward again for large portions of this game. Yeah, I watched. I watched probably half of this game, flipping back and forth between this one and some other ones. And I, I mean, I think that's true, but I, it's hard to say how much of that is Camp Ward and how much of that is. I mean, UCLA's defense is like has holding teams to the least yards per play in the entire country this year. So they may have found something there defensively in their new coordinator hire. Yeah, looks like Oregon State is a four and a half point favorite. I think they also had good players in the front seven already. Like they had those the the brothers that are good players. They have Laotu Laotu. Seems that they found some things at linebacker now that they're a little bit healthier than they were a year ago. Yeah, I, I think that UCLA had some pretty good talent in the front seven to work with. Yeah, kind of a up and down outing for Dante Moore. Two hundred ninety yards and touchdown. Did have two interceptions, including a pick six at the half, basically that that kind of kept this game a lot closer than it probably should have been. Uh, but he continues to progress, and it, it's so funny because their defense is so good this year, but their offense is just kind of kind of okay right now. Um, Oregon State, Cal. Uh, this is a score that none of us would have predicted for this game. Oregon State won 52 to 40. I don't know what to make of this one. <laughs> I, I didn't watch this game either, but I'm assuming they did cover. Cal... They were nine and a half point favorites, so. That's Congrats. one I actually that was one of your two wins. One of my yeah. two wins. Yeah, I, I'm just really smart, so I knew that this was going to happen. Um, yeah, I got nothing to add on this one. It sounds like it was ugly, though. If Cal scored 40 points. Yeah, DJ DJ threw for five touchdowns. Um, Fernando Mendoza uh, threw for 270 yards and two touchdowns for Cal. Cal ran for 250, which I think if you're Oregon State, you've really got to be concerned about that. Cal's offensive um, line's pretty bad, but Jade Knott's a good player. Yeah, but I mean, it was, I mean, he had, he actually only had 85 yards. Afonso had 86. Quarterback had 40. They had a couple other guys with a couple touches and a couple yards. So I got you. Um, yeah, no, it's, it was, uh, it was a game where Oregon's, like, it was kind of one of those games where, like, Cal never really was close enough to, you know, I don't think they ever had the ball with a chance to tie kind of thing like, you know, late in the game, but they never really went away either. It's kind of one of those games. Yeah. Um, this just sounded like a boring game. Like I'm I'm like it sounds like there was points scored, but it's still like it's just a boring matchup between two teams that don't interest me a whole lot. Yeah, it was 35-32 at the end of the third and then Oregon State scored 17 unanswered to start the fourth and that was kind of it, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, it's just. I think it's just two kind of. I think it's a bad team and a mediocre team, and they had a lot of points. Yeah, I, I this this UCLA game will be telling because I think it's going to go a long ways for UCLA. Like if they lose this game to Oregon State, like they basically 
I think they're pretty much eliminated from the Pac-12 title hunt because if they can't beat Oregon I mean, State or Utah, they're not beating USC in a rivalry game in the Coliseum. Well, both teams are five and one, and, and both teams have a loss in the conference. So the loser of this game is almost certainly eliminated. Um, I would love to just not hear about if it's Oregon, Oregon State, State because yeah, if Oregon State loses, they're definitely eliminated because they have they just have way more tough opponents coming up. Well, yeah, they, they have to Oregon, play Oregon. Play Washington. And, they got to. Yeah, sorry, and they're no. not going to go through that unscathed. So no, they're absolutely not. I don't. I don't think they're beating either of those teams. Okay, moving on. Colorado, Arizona State. <laughs> Arizona State. Uh, Colorado was a four-point underdog, and they did not cover. Uh, this game was a three-point game. It took a walk-off field goal by Colorado at the end to win. And then Sugar Sanders went and taunted the Arizona State uh, student section with their dominating performance or something. This is the, All this proves to me, though, is that Kenny Dillingham can score a decent amount of points with duct tape. Like that's like what's what he's playing with right now. He has duct tape, and he's got an offensive line that's completely beat to hell. He's down to his like fourth or fifth string quarterback, and he's just such a good offensive coach that they're still somehow staying in these games. Um, yeah, and I think it's for twenty four in this one. It says a lot about what he's building that they're like fighting in these games and actually like trying to remain competitive instead of just mailing it in because this team is such such a talent disadvantage that it could be really easy for them to mail it in and call it a season. Yeah, they're fighting every game. It's it's actually yeah, I give them a lot of credit. Yeah, Bourget threw for 335 yards. Uh, Scadabo ran for another 50. Eliza Badger had a nice game, 12 catches, 134 yards. Um, and and you know Colorado, I don't know. I mean, they're off at you. This is a game you would have expected. I would have expected Colorado's offense, especially coming off the second half of the USC game, to to maybe kind of re-explode in this one, and they really didn't. Shadur struggled. Uh, 26 or 42, 239 yards and a touchdown. Um, they really didn't get anything on the ground, which isn't surprising. Their receivers have kind of dropped way off after the hot start of the year. So, I, I mean, maybe this is just like, I think this is the real Colorado team that we all expected this year. And they got a couple of early wins against teams that turned out to be much worse than we all expected, right? Call, uh, Nebraska and, and TCU are both considerably worse than I think people projected them to be. So those wins at the time looked impressive, but now maybe less so. Well, TCU just lost to Iowa State, so like got blown yeah. out by Iowa State. Yeah, I think this is just the Colorado team, but Colorado absolutely had to win this game if they wanted to make a bowl game, and they almost lost. Uh, they were very close to losing this game. They needed 13 points in the fourth quarter. They needed a last-minute drive. And uh, they pulled it out, so good for them. And they've they've got they've still got to win two more. Um, and I don't think beating Arizona is going to be easy. And that's one of the ones that they're you know, probably one of their best, one of their better chances to to win. And Arizona's a, a team that's playing a lot better. We'll talk about them next. The last game of the week, Arizona went to USC, twenty one and a half point favorite, and they gave them a game triple overtime. Man, did you see these highlights? I didn't. Uh, actually, yes, I did see these highlights. I actually caught a little bit of this game. I think I fell asleep watching the second half last night. Um, the Hobbit, like part two, it was better than part yeah. one. Like he's starting to play well. Um, I think Noah Fafita's. I don't. I don't see any reason why they would go back to Jaden Delora at this point. I think that no, you have a more three hundred yards, five touchdowns. You have a more controlled and. and um, consistent effort from him with him at quarterback over, over what they're used to with Delora. I watched this whole game. Arizona also, was a better team. 
Also, USC is as soft as they've ever been. Like they are so soft. Arizona outplayed them. They 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 if not for their own self-inflicted wounds, uh, Arizona had 12 penalties for 99 yards and and several of those were in the most crucial were like I think on one drive they had three penalties on defense that's that kept the USC offense on the field and and it led to a touchdown. I mean, and they did that multiple times a game. Justin Flo shows you exactly the showed you exactly the player he was um, for Oregon. You know, he he had one of those costly penalties on that drive. And I mean, you, Arizona had a good defensive plan. They used a very similar plan defensively with seven defensive backs in this game that they used against Washington last week. And and quite honestly, they were and they were the better team, and they should have won, and they didn't. And USC escaped. But I'm with you; they're soft. This team looks like a team that honestly could be, I can see quitting at some point this year. Like, you know, they lose a game, they lose two. I, they're just, they're something, they're, they're just not, this is not a healthy football team. This is a team that I could see coming into odds and just getting shit stomped and then and quitting in the middle of that game. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're, I, they're I, just, absolutely. Like, I don't know who, I think Coleman is the last name of that Arizona back. And I was actually really impressed with the way he ran. But like he was uh he was running his butt off in this game and just running through so many weak arm tackles and um the amount of pressure that Arizona was getting on Caleb Williams with just rushing three not very talented pass rushers. I don't know. Like th- this game to me just screams um th- this game just screams like typical soft like Clay Helton USC with like a better quarterback. Well, the other thing I'll say is without Zachariah Branch, the receiving group is pretty average. Like it, it, it's pretty like, average. A lot of people gave me crap for my comments on on Brennan Rice, and like I think he's got some good physical talent, and like he's got the last name, but it, it continues to be proven on a week by week basis that I don't think he's like a high end number one receiver at this level. I, without Branch, they don't have a number one. They've got a bunch of twos and threes. Yeah, and like Brandon you know Rice, what? Taj that's, Washington, that's Mario Williams, they're, they're Kyron Hudson. Like they're they're fine. Dor- they're good. Dorian Singer players. is a good player too, but like it. Dorian Singer clear. didn't have a catch in this game. He didn't even very, get a catch. It's very clear to me that Dorian Singer was the third best receiver on that Arizona team a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And conversely, Cowing went for ten and ten catches, eighty-eight yards, and four touchdowns in this one. Yeah, and T Mac is just and insane. Rick- yeah, he had 138 yards in this one as well. So, um, yeah, USC's. I, I don't know how they continue to stay in the top ten. Like, I, I, I'm convinced that the AP voters had sent in their ballots before they saw this game last night. Because I'm just like, how can you watch this team the last? Well, this season but they're winning, right? Like, them. you can't you can't punish them for losing or for winning. And so we'll see. I mean, you can put them behind like a team like a North Carolina. Or a team like a Louisville, or you know, or a team. Oh, I think she, I think North Carolina would beat the crap out of USC if they played tomorrow. I'm just saying they're undefeated too. So why well, is, why is USC ranked ahead of North Carolina? Pull, iner- pull inertia, and I think I do think on the West Coast there are a lot of the East Coast writers that send in their ballots before those games, those late games happen. Definitely think that's the thing. All right, QB, let's move on. Power rankings time, and then we'll get some listener questions. I don't know that my power Never. rankings are any different than they were a week ago. 
my middle mixed up. I still got Stanford at 12, Arizona State at 11, Cal at 10, Colorado at 9, Arizona at 8. I think I flip-flopped Arizona and Colorado. We had them Colorado ahead of Arizona last week, but I'm flipping that. Yeah, that, that's fair. I think Arizona's a better team. I think like when that game comes, at the, that Arizona will be favored. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. And then I've got Utah at 7, Oregon yeah. State at 6, Washington State at 5, UCLA at 4. Yeah, yeah. All in line with my thoughts as well. Yeah. I have USC at three, but it's really three by default. Like, it feels like... Well, again, you can't the punish them for be- being undefeated. Yeah, the gap between two and three is growing, but they're they're not... You, you have nobody from the UCLA, Washington State, Oregon State, Utah group can be put ahead of USC at this point. So they're just there holding the place for now. And then obviously Washington's still a two, Oregon's still a one, and that one will be uh, hashed out here in six days. Yeah, I uh, I agree one hundred percent. There's there's really not a lot. Like I think because of like as these games get played, it's becoming clearer and clearer. I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that only Oregon can beat Oregon. Well, the, like we knew this coming into the season, and I don't say this as a homer. I say this just in truth. Like it's the most talented and deep and deep team in the conference, right? And so. Um, it has the least holes. It's the most complete team. Like they still have to do it, right? Like Washington's going to be a test. USC will be a test. Utah will be a test because of the road environment. But like, there's no reason that this team shouldn't be able to answer those calls. Um, and so, I, again, I'm just really excited to see. I need to see it happen, though, right? Because right now it's all yep. projection. Like on paper, it looks great, but I want to see it. I want to see it play out on the field. Absolutely. All right, let's get to some questions. All right, first up, uh, this one's from Nice's Doom on Scoop Duck. In my mind, Oregon has a 99% chance to beat Washington or any other Pac-12 opponent if they play a clean game. No turnovers, no mistakes, et cetera, no boneheaded penalties. So I'm wondering, in your guys' opinion, what has to happen for Oregon to lose this game? Uh, Washington gets a bunch of big plays through the air. Um Oregon comes out slow, turns the ball over, um, struggles with penalties, lets the environment dictate the game, and and lets things snowball on them early. Um, I think is kind of the easiest way for them to lose. Yeah, I mean, I I think it does come down to mistakes, right? I mean, you got to. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect, right? But you got to play a relatively clean clean game. And I think the other thing I would add is, you've got to avoid. Washington has been a hot starting team all year and Oregon has a couple of times started a little slow. And so I think you've got to, you've got to kind of avoid that early, you know, home excitement, if you will, that, that juice that, you know, maybe Washington will have coming into a game with their crowd behind them at the, at the start of the game. You, you've got to like fight that off and at least play them even through the first couple possessions until the game settles in, right? You can't you can't get down ten nothing or fourteen nothing on some you know emotional highs that that's running in, in Seattle. I think that's the other thing you'd have. Like, to I think if both there. teams play their best game, Oregon wins. Yeah, I, I but, but Oregon has to come out and play good. Like if if, if Washington plays their best game and Oregon plays a C minus or a C plus game, they Oregon's gonna lose. So. Like it's really just going to be about like having clean execution and playing like sound football. 
I, I don't think that this is a complex matchup. I just think that like Oregon needs to assert uh, the physicality edge at, the, at both lines of scrimmages. And I think that like they got a hit on a couple of their deep shots. And if Oregon does that, I think they've got a really good chance to win this game. Yep, absolutely. All right, we will move on to the next question. What is the most memorable Oregon versus Washington moment for you, good or bad? Uh, I'll, well, I've got a couple while you're thinking. Um, obviously, there's going to be things I personally remember, not like stuff from the photo archives or something. Um, I do. I am old enough to remember the pick. I wasn't there. Um, it was also a time when I was, you know, in – I wasn't nearly as dialed into being a fan as I am now, right? Obviously, you know, weren't living on the internet every day, didn't have message boards, didn't have all Twitter and all those things. But, I mean, I do remember watching that game. I do remember that season, and you know, the run-up to the Rose Bowl, right? I more, more remember the kind of that whole run to the Rose Bowl than, than necessarily the pick moment, particularly, obviously, that – kickstarted it off but we didn't know that was kickstarting off anything we thought it was just a cool ending to a game right uh more recently i was in the stands in 2018 with the with the verdell walk-off um touchdown so that was a great memorable moment um i was also up in seattle in 21 for the jimmy lake uh, jimmy lake's last game wouldn't say it was very memorable it was a kind of ugly sloppy very messy football game i think the memorable part about it was just seeing a bunch of Husky fans wearing yellow parkas all game, which was, was, was hilarious. And then just seeing their stadium completely empty at halftime. Cause they knew that even though they were down like seven points that they had no chance of winning. Yeah. I, I think that the 2007 game uh, where we just ran for 6 trillion yards against them and Jonathan Stewart went off. Um, that That's a memorable one for me. Uh, I would say probably the 2018 game is up there um, just for the momentum that that helped the program build. I mean, ultimately that one kind of helps lead to the commitment of Cable and Thibodeau. Um, obviously Kenny Wheaton's going to score. I wasn't really like paying attention for that a, a little bit before my time. Um, other than that, there was, there was a couple of games. I think the twenty. I think it was the twenty thirteen game in Husky Stadium where Mariota just went absolutely crazy, um, and we blew out a ranked. I think that was a Steve Sarkeesian coach team. Um, that was a pretty fun one. Twenty fourteen best uniforms of all time were were born, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Darren Carrington teabagged Buda Baker. That was a fun game. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of good memories in that. I mean, most of my life, I mean, especially my adult life, my life where I've been able to pay attention and like really comprehend what's going on, we've just owned them. Um, and that's been really fun. So. Yeah. All right. We'll have a lot more talk about the Husky game on our preview episode, obviously on Thursday, a couple more questions here. Hayward Hawk writes in, Tis the season for coaching speculation. Oh, God, I hate this stuff. Feinbaum's mention of landing to replace the soon-to-be-retiring Saban, and now the Texas A&M board is mentioning landing as well. After Mario, we hit the jackpot with Dan, but how confident should we be that Dan is a man of his word? I just, I think, I don't... I think that the Oregon job is a fundamentally different job than it was even six months ago. Yeah, I don't... I don't think... Dan is looking is going to be looking at any like first of all, Saban's not going anywhere like anytime soon. 
don't know. No, uh, that I would be the job. Dan, that would... I don't think Dan's looking to bounce. Like, Dan's not Mario. Like Dan's not Mario. That's it. Well, yeah. Also, Dan has no connection to any of these jobs. Um, and I think that Dan works with some people that know the challenges of being at Texas A&M. Um, yeah, and Mar- very having, well. having Marshall and some of the other guys on staff. So uh, Oregon is uniquely set up now, being in the Big Ten. Like I, again, I, I think that the number of jobs better than Oregon with the conference realignment changes has shrunken substantially. Um, and especially for someone like Dan, who doesn't have ties to any of the schools in, in, in question. So... Um, I'm not. I'm not going to be living in fear of losing Dan. I don't think that. I don't think that we're really at risk of losing him. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would. I, I would have. have. I think it would. You would be very hard pressed to convince me that A and M's a better job. And the money. The money difference, if there would be any money difference, would be negligible. I. I think you know if you if it comes down to you think you think you can land better recruits there, then that would be the that would be the thing. But I. I don't think Dan's convinced of that currently and we'll see what happens down the home stretch of this 24 recruit class which is heating up and, and into the future and i just i, I think to some degree so i don't mean to be dismissive of these concerns but i think i think oregon fans need to kind of like kind of get over some of this duck like battered duck syndrome stuff whether it comes to coaches leaving or like oh you know everything's going well so that means something's going to go bad next right like just enjoy the like ride that we're on right now both in the season and with the program and the trajectory it's going like don't look over your shoulder worrying for the bad thing that's going to happen enjoy all the good things that are happening and it'll take care of itself that that and again like when when these coaches have left they've left for their dream jobs um whether it was chip going to the nfl whether it was willie going to florida state or or crystal ball going to miami what's what's lanning's dream job and yeah. And what and, and what what has this program done to invest around Dan? What what opportunities have we given him? They've been ahead of him. They've been ahead of it. They've given him the the. He's basically making eight million dollars a year right now, and as in his second year as a as a Division One college coach, or a Division One head coach. Um, so. I mean, Oregon I, uh, overpaid him relative to his accomplishments so far. Like they uh, made a they made a bet. They made a bet on him. Yeah, yeah, and I think that he'll see that through. I think his, I think with his kids and his family, like if you listen to the interview he did with Adam Brenneman, which I'd recommend to all Duck fans. Um, yeah, really good, really excellent interview. Like very candid. I, I think that uh, a lot of these concerns are very much over, overplayed. All right, moving on. That one guy asks. Oregon had a quarterback issue after Mariota left and after Herbert left. Do you think we will have one? After Nick Lee, Nick's leaves, or are we better prepared? Well, I don't know that we're better prepared, but we have a tool at our disposal we didn't have after those guys left, which is the the transfer portal and you know incident yeah. eligibility and things like that. I agree with that one hundred percent. I I think that the biggest difference is the transfer portal, and I think that Oregon's track record with transfer portal quarterbacks now, like with what we've done for Bo Nix in his career. Um, and again, another great interview, but his, his interview with Yogi Roth, I think was fantastic. Um, and I think that that's going to be a selling point for, for young quarterbacks, uh, hitting the portal. And I think that Oregon is going to have a very compelling case to make to whatever quarterback they, tra- they target in the transfer portal this off season. I wish I could say that we had someone in the system that I felt super confident about. Like I wish Dante Moore was sitting on our bench right now, learning our system, getting ready for next year. But, 
Uh, I don't think that we're more prepared from that standpoint, but we'll see how prepared we are when the portal season comes. I think this year, I mean, I think the portal years, every year so far, the last couple, and I think this one will be even a next step up, right? The, the, just the evolution of how not just teams, but also players are using that portal every year. And then I think now moving into the power two era, I mean, there might be a lot of quarterbacks sitting around in the ACC or the big 12 or, you know, some of these other conferences that might want to look up and get into the big 10 or get into the sec to get into those big games and those big, bigger stages, especially with how good of a team we're going to be able to put on the field next year. Right. Like, I think that this is going to be such an appealing job just based on the sheer weapons that are going to be surrounding whoever it is at quarterback for Oregon next year. Yeah. You got a stacked offensive line. Um, you've got receivers, you got running backs, you've got a, a balanced offense, you've got a proven play caller, and you've got a defense on the other side that's going to set you up, uh, you know, to succeed. Uh, right. That's a very, very compelling opportunity. And again, like the opportunity now with the Big Ten, like you're going to be playing in these massive environments, awesome games. So it should be fun. Yeah, you get to play against Ohio State. You get to play against Wisconsin, Washington, um, Michigan. Like, those are big games, big stages. All right, next question. What's the biggest, this is from Autumn and Joyer Dan. What is, what's the biggest weakness you think Lossington will try to exploit on Saturday? I mean, we'll definitely get into this in our preview show, but maybe just off the cuff. Um, Biggest weakness. Well, I mean, Washington's going to go after our safeties, and I think that that's where I would attack too if I were them, because um, that's where they got a, like it's where they created a lot of their explosives last year. Like, not a lot of it came against corners, um, and so our nickels, our safeties. How do they hold up in coverage in the against the explosives? Um, I think is really going to go a long way to dictating the outcome of the game. I assume they're going to try to try to run at the edge uh, as well, at least early in the game. I think, you know, Oregon early in some games this year, Tech and Stanford come to mind, even a little bit of the Portland State game, um, you know, had some trouble, you know, getting runs contained that, that go to the edges. So I think but where, that's where Washington is, pro. Where is Washington going to get that extra number, right? Because, like, Tech and Stanford did it by running the quarterback. There's no way in hell that you're convincing me that Washington's going to line up and try to run Michael Penix at us. No, I didn't. I didn't say they're going to do that. I said I think they'll try to go at the edges. I, I think more just their standard runs. I don't. I don't think they'll necessarily be super successful at it. I could just see them trying it. Yeah, I just think about what they did last year with Polk against uh, against Bennett, um, and I think that's they're going to try to find that a similar matchup to that this year. I completely agree. All right, Paul Chambers asks: Given the speed that Penix gets his throws off, did the Ducks go? the Arizona route and play nickel the majority of the game. Well, we play nickel the majority of every game. First of all, uh, Arizona played seven DBs, which is they were calling dollar, <laughs> dollar uh, package. Uh, and no Douglas TS. Okay. Never mind. That's just, he, he says he doesn't want to start a podcast, but if he changes his mind, he knows where to go. He must be listening to our ads. So thanks for listening to our ads. Paul. <laughs> uh, do the Ducks go the Arizona route and play extra DBs or do they, what do they do? Um, I do think we play extra DBs. So I think specific, more specifically, I think we play with more corners. I think we play with three corners um, in this game a lot more. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we play Somewhere, with more similarly DBs. I think, how we still we... Play, I think we still play nickel. Like I think we're, we're playing five DBs. I just think it might be a different five DBs than we would normally play. 
Yeah, I, I think back to last year against Arizona, I think it'll be a similar a similar like structure to how we played them defensively a year ago. Yeah. Cloudy asks, over under on 250 rushing yards against Washington. I'm going to take over. the under. Okay. There you go. I think I think Oregon's going to be able to be really balanced in this game, especially specifically if like if Tooley's not playing. Um Oh. If Tuli's not playing or is not effective, that's a different story. Yeah, I, I just I think, I think under two fifty just because we 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 play we throw more this year. I think we'll go over two hundred, but under two fifty. That's fair. Oh, we can we can make a little show bet on that. That'd be fun. Yeah, maybe we can. Yeah, throw beer on that one. All right, Dan Lanning, King of the Big, asks: Do you all think there are any players on offense that could see their role expand as the season goes on? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's. I think there's a couple guys actually. I think young guys specifically. I think Kenyon Sadiq is one um, because he's just so athletically, like he's so dynamic athletically for a tight end. Uh, I think he ultimately will see his his role grow in in those packages with him in the game grow as the year goes on. Uh, and I think that we'll see some jury on Dicky as this year goes on as well. Um, I think this this I'm hoping and I and I'm hopeful that this uh, this bye week was an opportunity to get him more involved. Um, and kind of bring him up to speed when you consider how much he missed by not being an early enrollee. So yeah, in regards to Dickey, I think ultimately he ends up being a guy um, who contributes as the year goes on. He just missed so much time during fall camp recovering from that knee injury from his high school year and senior year. And then when you couple that with not being an early enrollee and having to pick things up, I think that the bye week is a good opportunity to kind of try to accelerate his development and bring him up to speed so that he can be a player um, that gets valuable reps because we're going to need him to step into a more major role next year. Yeah, no, I, I think he was my answer. I also like your your thought on Kenyon Sadiq. Okay, same, another question. Second question, out of USC, UW, and Utah with rising playing, who presents the most problems for our defense? Uh, I think USC, which is weird, weird because I think that Washington's better coached. I think they have better receivers and like they're more dynamic, but I just think that the the challenge that Caleb Williams presents from an athleticism standpoint, escaping the pocket and and creating creating plays that don't really exist within their offense, um, is like what is truly unique about them. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, I've watched USC all year long, and the the defenses have USC stopped, and then Caleb Williams pulls a rabbit out of the hat and. All of a sudden, it's a forty-yard play or a touchdown or a first down or something. It's it's over and over and over again. So, USC also has a, a pretty effective running game. Uh, they didn't use it a whole lot at Arizona, which I don't quite understand why, because Arizona was playing a four-man front. Um, but they've been a really effective rushing team all year long. So I think they present more balance on offense than than like Washington does in general. Um, so I would agree with that one. Okay, next question: EGC. Last season against UCLA, we saw great new play design coming out of the bye week. What are you expecting the staff to pull out of the bag of tricks this time around? Yeah, I don't know if it's a bye week thing, but I think that throughout the offseason and in the lead up to this game, I'm sure there's been some concepts that they thought would work against this Washington team that that have been in development. And so um, I'm not I'm not sure what they are. I, I don't even really know that I would be able to guess, like especially not accurately. Um, but I do think that... Uh, I, I think that Oregon is going to use more second-level RPOs in this game because um, I think that Washington, where they're strongest, probably is at linebacker. 
Uh, so uh, anything that could put those guys in conflict, I think, is going to be valuable in this game. Yeah, I kind of think of it as kind of more of the counters, right? So you're setting up, you're setting up these plays. We haven't yet, in a lot of cases, seen like what's the counter to the play that we're setting up. What's the tendency breaker? Those kind of things. So I think we've been doing a lot of setting up stuff this year. I think maybe we'll see more of uh, kind of the the second and the third third options coming out of those setups. Yeah. But I also think it's just football. Like at the end of the day, like you got to go out there and execute, right? I don't think it's a it's a game where you're like, oh, how are we going to trick the other team, right? We're going to pull out a bunch of trick plays. I mean, sure, there's going to be some trick plays on this game, but at the end of the day, you just you got to go out and beat the guy across from you. Yeah, don't disagree. All right, we got a couple more here. George Steenkolk asks two part question. One of two. People talk about the first offensive drive or two in a game as scripted. Given that drives can be anywhere from a couple plays to 13, how exactly does a team draw up a drive script? Do they design a tree of plays to run in order based on results of the previous play or what? Well, so script means different things for different coaches. That is what I've learned. So like for some coaches, a script is like literally our first eight plays are going to be these. Um, Now, obviously you get into certain situations um, and that's not how it actually plays out. Um, But a lot of times I think, for, for, for a lot of coordinators, like quote unquote scripted plays are concepts that they want to ha- get, like they want to, they, they're looks that they want to give a defense early in the game to see how they respond to certain things. Like, like a lot of times it's like, all right, well, we, we know um, what that their rules and coverage, or we think that their rules and coverage are this against this, like look, whether it's unbalanced or whatever it is, right? Um, and so getting, putting something in front of the defense to see, how they're going to respond to it this week based on the rules that were were enforced during camp or during during practice. Um, so, like it, again, I think scripting can mean different things for different for different coaches. Some coaches are like all about the script; like they'll script the first fifteen plays, and it's like no matter down distance doesn't matter. We're going to run those plays in that order. Um, but I think it's also a lot about like presenting certain looks to see what the see what the answers that are built into the week's game plan are for a defense. Yeah, that's a, that last part there is kind of what I had. I did some research on this because I thought it was a really good question and something that I've, you know, heard meant heard said for forty years and you know never really knew exactly either. And that last part I think touched on what I some of the stuff I saw is like you know based on your film study and and what you've seen in the defense, you it, it I, I think of it less of a the first type of thing where it's like oh first we're going to do this then we're going to do this and more of a here's a bat here's a here's a set, a set of plays that we want to run in the first couple of drives or hopefully in the first drive that will probe a defense and what we've seen on film and we'll see what the response is and then therefore we'll know how to adjust and adapt and how to attack it even better, right? So I think the way you said it very well, right? What are their defensive rules? Um, and so that's kind of the way I, I think about it. Those things change on a week-by-week basis too. Yeah. Like So, so it's more like if we can if we can probe a bunch of different ways then we can use all of that information to inform the rest of the game right versus just going out and running our best stuff you know kind of running into a brick wall over and over again right yeah where's uh where's Tifliday when we need a star trek reference to make this make more <laughs> sense yeah we need a we need a long rambling 7 minute analogy uh, that will eventually get us to somewhere in star trek oh don't be a hater uh, no it was fun it was fun all right Next question. 
Does the winner of the Oregon-Washington game start receiving first place votes in the poll? I don't know. Washington had a first place vote a couple weeks ago, and then they lost it after the Arizona game. I, I don't know. I don't. If it does, it's one or two, and who cares? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, unless unless one of the one team gets blown out, then maybe. But I think if one team gets blown out, then it'll have the opposite effect where everyone's like, well, maybe they weren't that good. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, again, I I was having this conversation with somebody earlier. You know, they're like, oh, if we if we beat Washington, let's say we beat them, you know, how far do we move up? Do we move ahead of Oklahoma? Do we move ahead? And I'm like, I, I, first of all, it doesn't really matter, right? Because, you know, first of all, you got to win the game. How about that? And then second of all, like the AP poll doesn't really matter and all the stuff will always work itself out as you go on. But I'm like, I don't, I don't see us going ahead of Georgia, Michigan, Ohio state or Florida state, like regardless of the outcome and, and probably not even Oklahoma. I, I I feel like unless those teams lose next week, I, I don't see any way the winner of Oregon, Washington jumps any of them. Maybe Oklahoma, maybe, but none of the other four. It depends how they look. I mean, I, I, I maybe I'm giving too much credit to AP voters for actually watching games. Yeah, I think the poll inertia is still the the primary mentality of the AP voter, right? Like we're not gonna we're not gonna move a team down unless like there's a really unless they lose or there's a really compelling reason. So, yeah. but you might be right. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Okay, I think we've got one more question here. Oregon football realist realist asks, can you please explain the reasoning behind Oregon playing 13 games next year? I understand that since we go to Hawaii, we get to play an extra game at home. But why do we even want an extra game? It seems very random and possibly puts us at a disadvantage having a longer season than every other team. Um, well, the why is money, right? So but way back in the day when this rule was started, the Hawaii was having a hard time to get teams to come to Hawaii to play them really hard time. No one wanted to go out there because it costs a lot of money to fly your team and equipment and everything over there. And, and so that's why the rule got put in place so that if you're willing to go over there and spend all that extra money, then you can have an extra home game to, to make some of that money back. Uh, the, the bigger question here, the, the, inter the more interesting question here is does Oregon even want an extra home game? It seems random and maybe puts Oregon at a disadvantage having a longer season and having to play an extra game. I, I don't. I feel like this is a better question for you. I don't have okay. really strong thoughts on it. I think that the benefits both on the recruiting trail, um, and I, I think that there's also like a genuine cultural connection between Oregon and the state of Hawaii. And so I think that like it, it, Oregon's a really popular brand over there. We recruit a lot of players from there. I, I think that there's a lot of benefits that are like non-financial to this as well. Um, just being no, accessible. I think, I think in that state. I think there's a big part of that. I think you're, there's a big part of that. That's true. I, I, and that's, I think why Oregon scheduled this three game series with Hawaii. You know, the first game we saw this year, um, they actually first game was supposed to be in 2020, um, which obviously got canceled, but we played in 23. We played in, we're going to Hawaii in 24. And, and then I think the, the 2020 game has been scheduled for a makeup in a future 2031. <laughs> Is now when that game is scheduled to happen, that could change again. But see, I would rather um, see us go there twice because then I have an excuse to go to Hawaii twice. <laughs> I never need an excuse to go to Hawaii, uh, but I, you know, I think you're spot on. I think that there is a it's there's a lot of 
Polynesian and Hawaiian players on Oregon's team. Uh, it's an area where they have recruited very well in the past, like to continue to recruit. I think there's, I think it's, there's a, there's, there's, I think it's just, there's, it's, some of it's just like, uh, a, I don't say PR because that doesn't sound like right, you know, but I do think there's a person, that, a personal connection kind of thing there that's important to the program as well as the recruiting aspect. And also there's probably an aspect of like, you know, Hey, you know, as players, that's kind of a cool trip for them to make. I'm sure, you know, to get to go to the islands, hang out, you know, it's the first game of the year. Maybe they'll go over early. I don't know. It's a business trip, but at the same time, you know, you can, you can build, you can build a day or two of fun into it too. And I'm sure, I'm sure the staff will. Yeah. I also think 2024 is one of those years. I haven't, I need to double check this, but I think I heard this. You know, every once in a while, you get a year that's a double buy year because there's an extra week in the way the calendar falls. And I believe next year is a double buy year. Don't I have to double check? It usually is for teams that play week zero. No, no, no. I no. We're playing. There's not a. There's not any buy. We play the 24th at Hawaii, the 31st Idaho, the 7th on Texas Tech, and the 14th at Boise State. So there's no off week there. But you. you know, like a couple years ago, we had two buys because of the way the calendar falls. Everybody did. Not just us, everybody. And so even if he didn't play week zero. And I think next year might be one of those years. So that that actually builds in a little bit more there. Also, at the end of the day, like it's not a game you're in danger of losing. Let's no, be real. So that thirteenth game, is it really gonna cost you much? I mean, you're gonna play your starters for a half and get a bunch of guys' experience. I, I don't think like the fact that you played an extra game in August is gonna really matter a whole lot when it gets to October. Yeah. All right. I think that is the last of the questions we have. Kibi, you got any final thoughts for today? No, I, uh, not really. I, th- I feel pretty good about, um, I, like, I, I just I feel good about where we're at with the podcast. Like, I think we've done like a lot of great content this last week with the buy. And I, like, I, I know that I enjoyed kind of resetting and getting away from football a little bit on Saturday. And I'm just ready now for like the back half of the season because there's so many exciting matchups and really important games to be played. So, um, I, I just want to say thank you to all the people that listen to support and reach out and tell us that they love the podcast. Cause it means a lot. And, um, it, uh, I want to thank you, Doug, cause you do a lot of the hard work behind the scenes that makes this actually work since I just kind of show up. Well, you know, you're the star of the show, so you oh, know, we gotta, we gotta make that work. It's not, the I, Doug I just Scott appreciate, show. It's the I appreciate you show. for letting me come on the Doug Scott show. So, <laughs> Uh, you're right, though. This this home stretch. I mean, this is going to be great. I mean, there's so much good football. Like, okay, Washington, then Washington State, then Utah, then Cal, then USC, then Arizona State, then Beavers, then the Pac-12 title game. Like, boom, 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 boom. It's going to be an, an amazing home stretch finish to this 23. You know, the sad part is, give me where our season's kind of like 40 percent over already. We made all year for football, and then it just flies by. So, everyone, please I mean, enjoy we're five games the into next the seven game games. Season. You're right. It's a third. It's a third over. Yeah, we're five games into a 15 game season, Doug. Don't be a don't be a you pessimist. Got it. You got it. You're right. It's a third over, but a third is still a lot. That's what I'm saying. Like enjoy every one of these games down the no, stretch. All right, at QB11 Show on Twitter, at QB11 SD, at Douglas TS. Follow us, like us, subscribe on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, subscribe everywhere, and uh, thank you. And we will talk again quite soon.